I think we have the same basic couple of announcements, and that is the weekend of the 24th and 25th. We have a couple of things going on. The men's prayer breakfast on Saturday morning. Uh, we'll have a special uh, speaker that morning, Rick Miller, who is a state representative in the Texas uh, House of Representatives, and he's from uh, from the Sugarland area. He was, was former head of the uh, Republican Party in Sugarland, uh, conservative, and uh, he's retired naval uh, fighter pilot. So he'll give a little report as to what's going on in the Texas, in terms of Texas government. So often we focus on national things. We don't always know what's going on at the state level. So that'll be good. And then we'll have a time of prayer. So as before, when I get a special speaker like that, we're going to be inviting uh, men from some of the other uh, churches to come. And last time we had quite a turnout with about 60 or 70 men from about five different congregations. So we'll look forward to that. And then that same weekend on Sunday night, at uh, at 6:30, Yorm Edinger, who's the is a um, uh, retired uh, uh, Israeli ambassador, he was a consul general here in Houston, the consul general, Israeli consul general for the Southwest back in the late 80s, and he is quite informed, quite involved in a lot of different things, quite involved with a lot of uh, U.S. Israeli cooperation in in businesses at multiple levels. So he's going to have a lot a lot to say as well about you know, just ways in which the uh, U, the U.S. benefits from an alliance with Israel and how Israel really benefits the world. There's just a lot that the uh, that the Israelis do. They're usually one of the first people on the response. Anytime there's a Major disaster internationally. The Israelis usually have their uh, emergency response team there before anybody else, and in some countries they have a response team that goes in, and nobody knows they're Israelis because the Israelis are not looked on with favor in some of those countries, and so they're there anyway. And it's just a great example of of how they are fulfilling that principle of the Abrahamic covenant of blessing. Uh, being a blessing to the world. So that's going to be a tremendous, uh, tremendous event as well. So those are the only two announcements. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer as we get ready to get into our study, further study related to Romans 9, and then we'll get into our study. Let's pray. Father, it's a great privilege to come before you and come before your throne of grace because of the way you have so magnificently provided for our salvation and our spiritual life through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the more we study and learn about our salvation, what was accomplished on the cross, and all that we have in Christ, the more amazed we are at all that you have so freely given us. Father, we pray as we continue our study in Romans, especially in tonight's lesson as we focus upon the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we may come to understand this better, that we may articulate our faith clearly to others, and that we may come to uh, really strengthen our own uh, arsenal of ammunition from the scriptures in order to better communicate our faith to other people. And we pray that you might help us to focus and concentrate this evening. We also pray for Jim Myers as he's traveling and uh, going to a few more places before he heads back to Kiev and all the last-minute preparations this month. And you watch over him, provide for him. And We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in Romans chapter 9. And the last three or four lessons, the focus has been on understanding what the Scripture says about the deity of Jesus. This is one of those areas that uh, those who are disbelievers of Christianity in the Bible focus on attacking. One is one area they attack is the authority of Scripture. The other area they attack is the deity of Christ. 
And we live in a world today where you get these attacks more and more frequently, and you hear them in a lot of different places. I was talking with someone not long ago, and they pointed out that um, that, that they watch, they love both history, these are friends of mine, they both love history, and they watch almost everything that's on the History Channel, the Discovery Channel, all of these different things. And, and that's not unusual. A lot of people are that way, and it would probably not surprise us how many people get their understanding of Christianity from these kinds of sources. But PBS, the History Channel, the Discovery Channel are not good sources because they go to popular theologians, and popular theologians are popular because they don't re- they they reject the absolutes of scripture and so uh, you can't count on that for for truth but what my point is that that has these ideas have filtered down uh, to everyday people and whether they know wh- who teaches them or where they come from or not is is not important that's what they believe well the bible really doesn't make that claim somebody made that claim about jesus some uh, 100 or 200 years later and how can you really believe Jesus is God? That's not that, that, that's not something anybody can believe. So how do you answer that question? Because people will ask that not out of a way to necessarily just be attacking you when you're witnessing them, but they've heard this and they want to know an answer. And we don't want to intellectually insult them by saying, well, you just have to believe it because I said so. We have to be able to articulate our faith. Paul did it. Peter did it. Peter said we all have to do it. And First uh, Peter 3.15, that we have to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. And so we have to be able to explain why we believe these these particular things. And sometimes when we're witnessing to people, and I have a, uh, a friend that I have had uh, a number of conversations with over a number of years, and he will start off, and he has like a set of 10, 10 or 12 reasons why you just you can't believe the New Testament. And he can machine gun those things out of his mouth. And about three years ago, I just stopped him after the first time. Whoa, stop. Okay, I know you got a bunch of other reasons, but let's just talk about that one. Because what happens is people put this stuff out there as part of their suppression of truth mechanism to prevent you from really having a conversation because they don't want to be challenged. They don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to be challenged. And then once you sort of say, okay, and my strategy has been that each time we have one of these conversations, I'm just going to stop him on one of these objections and say, let me show you why that's not a valid objection. And so as time goes by, I kind of pick apart this defense, defensive mechanism uh, that he has. And that's not just something that I should do as a pastor. That's what we're all supposed to do. And my responsibility as a pastor is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. That means it's not really my job to do most of the evangelism around here. It's your job. So we need to be prepared to, to do that. Now, Romans 9.5 is just a great verse and is one of the most significant verses for stating the deity of Christ in the New Testament. And there's, in modern theology, contemporary theology, there's a certain amount of debate over this because liberalism comes along. They have these interesting little mechanisms they use. Well, Paul doesn't really make a really clear, obvious, overt statement that Christ is God anywhere else in his writings. Of course, that's not exactly true, but that's what they say. So this can't really be a... That's not really what Paul's saying here because that's not Paul's style. Uh, that's a that's a common thing that is said today, and so. Uh, but th- th- it's really clear from the from the scripture that from this scripture that he says, "Of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came." In other words, Christ came from the fathers: Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Joseph, and his brothers. Christ came. And then usually it says, Christ came, who is over all, the blessed God, amen. Now that clearly states his His deity, but you can translate it and shift the appositional phrase around, which makes it even more clear. Christ came, the eternally blessed God. This is a really strong statement on the deity of Christ and that he is uh, over all. 
So we looked at this in terms of, well, what are three Old Testament promises you can put in your little arsenal? You know, you can stick them in your little uh, Christian witnessing magazine so you can fire at least three bullets at somebody from the Old Testament and three bullets from the New Testament, and you can get this down. And we looked at three promises. So what are they? Test time. Two of them are in Isaiah, one of them's in Micah, and they were all written about the same time. It's Isaiah 7.14. And like I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, just remember the, cha- the, the book and the chapter. Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, Micah 5. Uh, all odd numbers, 7, 9, 5. Okay? Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah 9.6, Micah 5.2. Those are the three Old Testament promises. Three New Testament promise, uh, statements that, that clearly talk about the deity of Christ are John 1, 1 through 5, and 14. And those are good verses to memorize, by the way. And then Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. So last time we looked at John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. The Word was with God, indicating a separate, distinct personality. And the word was God. And the important thing here is the verb was because it's a it's a it's in the imperfect tense, which indicates continual past tense existence, and it's very different from what we find in First John. I mean, excuse me, in John one six, when it says, "And there came a man, John," and it uses a different verb. It uses the verb "ginomai," indicating coming into existence, whereas. Uh, Amy, the word, or in English, the word is or was indicates a continual existence. And that uh, it says here, the Logos was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So once again, right up front, Christ is said to be the, the creator. He's uh, creations attributed to him, which is an act of deity. And we're going to see the same thing in Colossians chapter 1. So there's no apologetics. Our apology, let's say, not apologetics, it's a wrong term, but there's no apology on the part of the the writers of Scripture for believing in, in ex nihilo creation. That's what we've been studying in our Acts passage in, on Tuesday nights. It's interesting that we have uh, both in the John 1 and Colossians 1 passage an emphasis on one of the first things the writer emphasizes is on Jesus as creator. And Colossians 1.15, I think we began this last time, and we're going to come back and just touch on it and go through this section tonight and on into Hebrews 1. Colossians 1.15 says that he is the image uh, of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And then we have an explanatory verse, for by him, this explains why he is uh, he, Paul can say that he has the very essence of God. That's the, imp- that's the significance of that first sentence. When he says he's the image of the invisible God, he's saying he, is, he has all of the essence of God. And the first line of evidence for him being fully God is that he created all things. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. And those terms usually refer to different ranks among the angels, whether they are fallen angels or whether they are elect angels. And somebody recently uh, asked me if this ranking was affected in any way by the by the angelic rebellion. And I think that that... We probably had a reorganization of the angelic ranks under Satan for the fallen angels, but that's as far as, as, as we can go. God created each individual angel as its own entity. They don't have, you know, marriage among the angels. They don't make baby angels, so there's no procreation that takes place. God created each angel in and of itself, so they're not related to one another. And we're all related to one another. We may go back. Uh, uh, 200 years, 500 years, we may go back all the way to Noah in order to have a connection or to Shem, Ham, or Japheth to have a connection, but we're all basically cousins. There's a pretty good chance that there's at least one member of this, con- or extended member of this congregation who has an ancestor from 300 years ago that married 
that we have a common ancestor going back like 300 years. I don't know what that's called, but it's a long way back. And uh, we're all related. That's why Christ could die for the entire human race, because he became a human being via the virgin conception and birth. So he's genetically related to every one of us. But he couldn't die for the angels because he wasn't an angel. Every now and then, somebody comes along and thinks that Jesus' death has something to do with some sort of redemption solution for the for for Satan or for the angels. But Jesus dies for human beings because and because he is a human. Being. That's what allows for the substitutionary death of Christ. And he can't die for the angels. And he couldn't have come as an angel. And die for all the other angels because the angels aren't related to each other. There's not an, an integrated unity there, but there is with the uh, with the human human race. So he is also uh, the image of the invisible God. He is God Himself, and so he is able. He is the firstborn over all creation. Now we look at this uh, terminology. Describes his, his who he is in verse 15 describes his actions that have uh, demonstrate his essence in verse 16, and in uh, verse 17 states his eternality and also his sustaining work of the creation. And then verse 18 ties him to his role and relationship to the church. So in verse 15 we read three key terms here. He's the image of the invisible God, then the second key term is he's the invisible God. What does that mean and how is that significant? And then the third term is the term firstborn. Now, as we look at this uh, first first word that is said attributed to Jesus, he is the uh, icon, the image or representation of God. And this is a Greek term, and the word icon in the Greek, uh, or ikon, as it would be pronounced in modern Greek, ikon, it indicates the essence of the thing that is that that the image reflects and is part of the very and shares in the essence of the thing. That's why in Greek Orthodox theology they they get into trouble and and it's, it was called idolatry and developed into the, what was called the iconic iconoclastic controversy in the early church is that they have these icons that they put up in Greek Orthodox churches and they come in and they'll have an array of candles and flowers and they come out and they they pray to those icons. Now they'll they'll try to some of them try to say, well those are just sort of like training aids. But the problem is in in Greek thought there is this integral relationship between the essence of the thing and its image they're they're united this goes all the way back into some of uh some of the thought of plato and aristotle as well so two ideas are present with this word one is that jesus as the image uh, possesses full deity he has all of the attributes of god to say jesus is the image of god it's not just saying jesus uh, is a picture of god it's saying that Jesus shares in all of the essence and all of the attributes of God. And the concept of image also indicates a representation. So just as you might have a, a picture or an icon on your screen, on your computer, that represents something. So the, both ideas are present here. Jesus is the very essence of God, and he is the representative of God. And this fits with what we st- saw last time in John, uh, John 1, 14 and 18, and that is that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten has explained him. So he is the eternal Lagos, John 1, 14, who became flesh, and dwelt among us, he added humanity to his deity, and he dwelt among us so that he could be the one who reveals the Father to us. So how do we how do we know what the Father looks like? Jesus said, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Just look at me. The and the reverse would be true as well. If we've seen the Father, we've seen Jesus. There is such a close unity in 
in the in the Trinity. That if you've seen one, you've seen all three of them. This is a there's a, a theological term. I've used it a few times. It's not one that I have. I, I usually forget the, forget the term, like some of, some of these terms. But this was used in the early church. It's called perichoresis. P e r i c h o r e s i s. Perichoresis, which is the Greek term for a Latin word that was circumincision, circum not circumcision, circumincision. And they both describe the same thing, which is that the, the Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father, the, the Spirit is in the Father and in the Son, and that if you've seen one member of the Trinity, you've seen all three, because there is an integral unity within the Trinity. And so this is very important to understand. Sometimes we we, because we're finite, because we have trouble understanding the concept of the Trinity, we do fail to we, we do go to the point of separating them so much that when we see a, a something in Scripture, for example, when Isaiah in Isaiah six goes before the throne of God, we want to say, well, that was the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit. No, it's it's the Triune God that He sees. It's it's the in, it's the Godhead that He's seeing on the throne, and that's why in John chapter twelve. Jesus said that Isaiah beheld his glory because if you've seen the glory of the Father, you've seen the glory of the Son because there's a unity in the Godhead. And this is that doctrine of perichoresis. So Jesus can be said to be the image or the representative of of God. So the image shares in the reality and the essence of what it represents and the essence of the thing is portrayed and, and presented in the image. So this is a loaded term. You can't use an English definition of image to catch all of the, all of the nuances and all of the significance of the, of the Greek word that underlies that. So he's, and this is stated again and again in the New Testament. You have passages like 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, the, whose minds, talking about the minds of unbelievers, the minds the God of this age has blinded. Now we're going to get into some things related to, uh, excuse me, related to Calvinism in the coming weeks as we get more into Romans 9. And I just want to front load you with this, this thing a little bit because in Calvinism there's the idea from their understanding of total depravity, which they usually refer to as total inability, that it is absolutely in, man, fallen man is incapable, completely incapable of understanding the gospel or even expressing positive volition toward God. It's impossible for the unsaved person to do this. And let me suggest that if it's so impossible for the unsaved man to even express positive volition, then why does Satan need to blind their minds? Never thought about that? Why does Satan need to blind the mind of an unbeliever if he's locked into negative volition and he can't understand anything? So a part of the role of Satan is he blinds the mind of unbelievers. That's 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe. Why does he blind them? So that the light of the gospel of what? Of the glory of Christ. Now, that's a term we're going to look at a little bit more in depth in this lesson. The glory of Christ, the use of glory is often a circumlocution. That's a fancy way of saying another way of talking about something. It's another word for something. It's a circumlocution for talking about the essence of something. So if you want to talk about the glory of the thing, you're talking about the essence of the thing. All For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the essence, the entire essence and nature of God. So the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So the gospel is related to the to Christ's glory. Christ's glory is related to his work on the cross. And then we're told of the glory of Christ who is, now we're defining who Christ is, who is the image of God. So again, in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul makes this same statement. This is a profound statement that Christ shares in all of the attributes of God. He is the image of Christ. On John 17, 5, 
Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, here it's not talking about essence because Jesus didn't give up his essence. This is talking about the manifestation of his divine nature. Jesus limited the manifestation of his divine nature when he was on the earth. The only time that Jesus revealed his divine nature was at the Mount of Transfiguration when his his glory uh, shone forth and James and John and Peter saw that glory. That was the radiance. And we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, the whole concept of the the light and the radiance of his glory, but that was just that's the effect of his essence, and that effect of his essence was veiled during the incarnation. It was not taken away; he was still full deity. It was just veiled during, and that gets into the kenosis passage in Philippians chapter two. So he's the image of the invisible God. We don't see God. No one has ever seen God the Father uh, as Jesus is represented here. Uh, so we've never seen him in his essence. John 1.18 says no one has seen God at any time. They may have, uh, Isaiah saw his glory, but he didn't see beyond the glory, beyond the, uh, as we'll see in Hebrews 1, talking about the effulgence of his radiance. He doesn't see behind the light that emanates from God, the Father. So John 1.18 says that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, that is the unique Son of God, the one-of-a-kind Son of God from monogenes, meaning uh, uh, only kind, one-of-a-kind, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And the word for declared is the word exegeo in Greek, which is where we get our word exegesis. It means to explain or expound upon something. So Colossians 1.15 says that, that he is the an image of the invisible God and then the firstborn over all creation. Now, we think in terms of our culture and our use to the word first, we think in terms of first, usually in terms of chronological order. But the way the Greeks use the term, it, it can be first in a sequence, but it also can be first in terms of significance, preeminence, or priority. The one who is first is the one who is elevated in authority over everything else. And so that's the idea here. It's from the Greek word prototokos. Uh, prototokos means firstborn, preeminent, first in time, or first in rank. And what we have here is first in uh, the idea of first in rank. And we see this in a number of different uh, passages. Uh, the Old Testament uses it in reference to G- the Messiah, uh, that Psalm 89.26. Psalm 89.26 is a meditation on the Davidic covenant, written a psalm written by David, and he's reflecting upon the blessing of God in promising that through David and through his descendants, there would be this eternal king that would rule on the throne of, of uh, on David's throne in Jerusalem. And he will cry out to God, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. Also, I will make him my firstborn. He will be the first in rank above all the kings of the earth. So this term firstborn is also a term that has messianic implications uh, from the Old Testament. Now, this word is used in several other passages in the New, in the, uh, New Testament. For example, in Romans 8.29, states, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and we studied this not long ago in Romans, that predestined has to do with determining a destiny, an end game ahead of time. It doesn't mean choosing or selecting who will be saved or who won't. It is saying that those who are saved will have a destiny, and that is to be conformed uh, to the image 
There's that word again, conform to the image of his son. So we are to take on the character qualities and essence of God. That's what's being produced in us character-wise as the fruit of the Spirit. That we're to be, we're predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, Christ, might be the firstborn, that's first in rank among many brethren. And then, uh, also our current passage. So we have this emphasis on, uh, that Christ is the firstborn over all, all creation. Now, the re- there are several reasons why this can't mean first in time. The first is that would be inconsistent with the context. That would be inconsistent with the context because the context states that he created all things. Now, he can't be a creature if he's created all things because then he would not have created himself. So all things is a universal term indicating that Christ created all things. It doesn't say Christ created everything except himself. That's the idea that comes from Arianism, which was a heresy developed in the early, uh, or late third century, early fourth century in the early church, that somewhere in eternity past, Christ was generated. There was a time when Christ was not. That was the little, uh, contemporary Christian chorus that, uh, Arius sang all around the Roman Empire. You know, a lot of heresies communicated through a lot of different, a lot of different hymns. And a lot of people get more of their theology from the hymns that they sing from the, than from the sermons that they hear. And so, uh, that was the, the little ditty that he popularized. There was a time when Christ was not. In other words, God the Father is the eternal Father, and at some point in eternity past, he generates the Son. So that would make the Son a creature. So he couldn't create all things if he himself is a creature. He could only create everything but himself. So the statement that he created all things indicates that he is, uh, he is fully God. Uh, second, it's, it's, this it, uh, contra- would contradict the rest of the New Testament, which uh, clearly states and emphasizes that he is eternal. John 1, 3 is one passage. He is eternal. He's the unique one, and that he also created all things. He is the uh, revealer of the Trinity and the one who is the, uh, we might say God the Father is the architect, Uh, God the Son is the project manager, and God, the Holy Spirit, it was the one who was on site overseeing everything. It, it works in some, some, something like that. Each had a distinct role, but they're all can be said to be the creators of all things. So it has this idea of being first in priority. Uh, he created all, <clears throat> all things. In fact, um, in the New World Translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, they insert a word like other in different places here in order to keep the uh, Jesus from being a u- unique firstborn uh, cr- creator of all things. And we also know that in Hebrews 1.6, Jesus receives the worship of the angels and only God can be worshipped. And so that indicates, again, that he has full deity. So this idea of firstborn indicates that he is the preeminent one in and rules over creation. Now, Colossians 1.16 goes on to say that it is by him that all things were created. That's the first preposition on the left. Uh, uh, by him all things were created, uh, were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, and whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him. That's the second one, dia, which indicates secondary agency. And then the last one, they're all created for him. The first phrase, for in him all things were created that are in heavens and that are on the earth, probably has the idea more that in his thinking, this was eternally in his thinking, and it was in his mind as a, as a complete total package or pattern that he knew forever. And then it was through him, through his agency, that it was created. That's the second thing. Uh, in plus the dative can indicate agency as well. 
The problem is that would be a redundancy in the passage. You've already said it in the second phrase, dia autu, that's already stated agency, so you wouldn't say by him and by him. So that first in autu probably has the idea in his mind, for in him, in his thinking, all things were created, and then it concludes by saying all things were created through him as the agent of creation and for him. So he's the architect, the builder, and he becomes the goal of the universe itself. The goal of the universe is towards him. And then Colossians 1.17 emphasizes the fact that he is the sustainer of the universe. Only God could do that in his omnipotence. Only God the Father could sustain all of the creation. And so this is one of the reasons... Now, this doesn't give us a right to be irresponsible in our in our stewardship or oversight of creation. We don't want to foolishly abuse creation. But that's not the prominent view of, of environmentalism today. Now, that's true in some areas, maybe. But that's not what is happening politically or culturally in terms of the environmentalist movement. The environmentalist movement that we have today is built off of a pantheistic view of the universe and really the worst virus on the planet are we humans. And in the environmentalist uh, ideology, uh, we should all go back to as close a view of nature as we possibly can. And that's just a distortion of things. God put man on the planet to oversee and utilize the natural resources and develop them for the glory of God and for the benefit of mankind. And there's nothing wrong with that. Now, we can do that in a rapacious manner, and certainly human beings have done that from everyone from primitive tribes all the way up to to uh, to, to modern corporations and industries. But but really, if their people are wise, they know better than to foul their own nest. Yeah, but even in the, um, so, you know, usually what you find with environmentalists is some sort of ideal of the, uh, uh, of the primitive native that they are somehow pure and they haven't been uh, sullied by civilization. And so you get this, this totally false view and what you had, like what you had in the, in, for example, from uh, in a, in our own history, in American history, the Comanche. I mentioned this the other night. I've been reading a great book called The Empire of the Summer Moon, which is a w- extremely well written history of the rise of Quanta Parker and the fall of the Comanche Nation. And if you want to learn some really interesting things about Texas history, that's a great book. Uh, to read. I highly recommend it. But the Comanches really overpopulated Comancheria in the uh, period that they dominated from the 1700s through the uh, late 1800s because they would go into an area and they didn't have understanding of modern principles of sanitation and they didn't have garbage pickup every day and they didn't have uh, separation of all the different uh, things that they were putting out in the garbage and they would just go live in an area until they trashed it and then they would move to another area. And then, and they would continue to do that. And they were extremely violent and they pushed, uh, they pushed the Apaches and several other tribes out of the high plains once they got horses. And so it just shows, once again, that, that one tribe pushed another tribe out and then, uh, you know, the Americans came in and Anglos came in and we just did what the previous tribes had done. We just pushed the next tribe out and somebody would come along eventually and push us out. That's how history has, has run its course. And so there's no such thing as this innocent, pure, uh, native that was living in some sort of pristine paradise and then the evil, uh, Anglo-Westerner came in and drove, drove everybody out. And so this is just used as a way to beat up on any kind of modern technology, modern industry that makes life better for all of us. Thank God we have uh, discovered so many different things that make life so much easier for us and so much more comfortable. After a day like today, when I think it hit 102 here in Houston, thank God we have air conditioning. 
Can you imagine what it would be like if we didn't have air conditioning? Some of you remember that before Houston got. Houston is a city that air conditioning made. Uh, it was just you know just a bump on the bio before we got air conditioning, and now look what's happened. Of course, the other side of it is once they got air conditioning, Congress could meet most of the year, and so maybe we shouldn't have air conditioning. We probably have a lot of freedoms that we've lost due to technology, but that's that's a different issue. Christ sustains everything. And he has built into creation the mechanisms to cleanse, cleanse out all of the impurities that develop within, uh, within all of the ecological systems. For example, you have any number, you pick your favorite volcano, whether it's uh, Pinatubo, I've seen studies on that, or Mount St. Helens, or Krakatoa, or just anyone that goes off, and you measure the pollution that's thrown into the air by these volcanoes, over a period of just a few days, and it ta- would take take decades and de- decades of industrial pollution to uh, do as much damage as one volcano does in a couple of days uh, to the environment. So uh, that's not justifying irresponsible uh, industrial waste. But it is pointing out that we, we just get so overbloated in our estimation of our importance that we can somehow destroy the planet. We can't destroy the planet. We may trash our neighborhood, but we may not, we're not going to destroy the planet because Jesus Christ has built in systems within every system of the planet to cleanse the air, to cleanse the water, to cleanse different things, and it all runs along according to his plan or purpose. But see, if you remove God, then you're left to the only real causative uh, agent in the universe is man. And so man becomes the the bad person. all, All these things fit together. So Christ is the one who is the sustainer of everything. And Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in Him all things consist, or by Him. So He is the one who sustains everything in the universe. Now, the next major passage we have to look at for understanding the deity of Christ is in Hebrews chapter 1. So let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 1. John 1. 1 through 5, John 1, 14 and 18, and Colossians 1, 15 to 17, and then we come to, uh, then we come to Hebrews chapter, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 is another tremendous passage on the Son as being divine. Starts off in verse 3, who, that is a reference to the Son. And so that relative pronoun takes us back to the statement made at the very beginning of the chapter. We read in verse 1, God, referring to God the Father, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has, so we have this long relative clause defining God in the first verse, so God is the subject of this opening sentence, God has spoken. That's the opening sentence. That's your main clause. God has spoken. When did he speak? In these last days to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. So he's talking about God's revelation to us by his Son, who he's appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Right there, the second verse The writer of Hebrews does the same thing that Paul does in Colossians and that John did in John 1. He takes us right to the doctrine of creation. But I've heard so many Christians say, we don't want to get, we don't even want to talk about creation's a distraction to the gospel. Well, none of the apostles knew that. None of the writers of scripture knew that. They understood that the doctrine of creation is crucial to understanding who this God is who sent Jesus. And who Jesus is, he's the one who has made who, who, through God through Jesus, God made the world, and then we come to verse three, who still talking about his son, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the mighty on high. That is a 
well-packed verse. We're just focusing on the deity of Christ here, that he is the brightness of his glory. So there's several different ways to express this, but the idea that we have here in the Greek is that he is the express image of God, the same idea that we have in Colossians uh, 1.15. Starts off with that relative pronoun who, referring to Jesus Christ, who being, again, we have the participle of a me. A me is the same verb that we have in John 1, in the beginning was the word. It's your primary verb of existence. It's like our word is. And when you ask what is is, it means that Jesus exists, okay? Uh, Jesus exists, and it has this emphasis of uh, something that is ongoing. It's a present participle. And the present tense indicates ongoing action. So he uh, is, he doesn't become, that would be genomai. So the choice of the verb here for the participle is very important. He doesn't become the brightness of his glory. He is, it has to do with his essential uh, uh, characteristics, who being the brightness of his glory. This is the Greek word alpagasma. Apalgasma means radiance, uh, the effulgence. It means uh, it can mean in the passive voice the re- reflection, but it has to do with the, the. This is the result of his internal light. We might say this is what is expressed. It's the outworking of his glory, the expression of his glory. Now we see various other uh, passages that talk about this. The core idea is that this relates to a brightness, a brilliance of light that is, that emanates from the core uh, glory of God. And when we talk about that, of course, we're going to have to bring in a discussion on the whole concept of the Shekinah or the Shekinah, that's the Hebrew pronunciation, the Shekinah, glory of God. And the, the, this, that, this brightness is the, visible radiation, you might say, of his, of his glory, of his uh, invisible essence. We have passages that talk about this. For example, in John 1.14, we read, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Now, this is an interesting passage because you'll have some people who will go to this verse, and they'll say, well, John was one of the three guys who were... Uh, who saw Jesus in his uh, revealing his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration? The, the trouble is when when we get into John two, where Jesus changes the water into wine. John says this is the first manifestation of his glory. So he's not talking about this this visible expression uh, of light uh, indicating his essence, but his character. What he does, and that's one of the evidences how glory is used in the scripture to refer to the essence or character of Christ. So we beheld his glory. That really means that what John is saying here is not that we saw the brightness of his glory at the Mount of Transfiguration, but every day in every way, the essence of God was manifested to us. We learned who God was because we hung out with Jesus every day. And that's how we saw the glory of God. We saw his essence in Jesus. And so that's the thrust of the verse. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In John one eighteen, as we'll see, uh, no one has seen the Father at any time. The only begotten has revealed him. Now, 2 Corinthians 4.6 also states this, that it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shown in our hearts to give something. So this is talking about something God does internally in our soul. Heart here is used as a synonym for the soul. It's referring to our immaterial makeup. He has shown in our hearts to give what? Light. So here light is used to refer to revelation, to the unveiling of truth, to illuminate that which has been unseen in darkness. He's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge and the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So God has uh, is the one who reveals to us uh, Jesus, and that that 
revelation through Jesus gives us knowledge of the glory of God or the essence of God, and it's seen in the face of Jesus, in his uh, humanity, in his incarnation. Now, this is what is seen in... In, in the, for example, in the early creeds of the church. And one of the foundational creeds was the Nicene Creed, which was written in a church council called by the first uh, Christian emperor, Constantine. In 325, they met in a suburb of, uh, of uh, Constantinople or Byzantium, uh, later called and now called Istanbul, Nicaea. And they had representatives from all over the Roman Empire. These bishops came together, and the real issue was that they were to hammer out was what's the relationship of this, of Jesus as the Son of God to the Father? Because this had become a major divisive element within the early church. Arius, I mentioned him a little while ago, was a presbyter uh, down in uh, Alexandria in Egypt, and he was teaching that there was a time when Christ was not. In other words, Christ isn't eternal. Athanasius uh, comes along, and Athanasius is a theologian, leader of the church, also in Alexandria, and he is taking a stand saying that, no, you can't have Jesus as a creature. If Jesus is a creature in any way, shape, or form, even if he's given derivative deity, he can't do what Jesus needed to do on the cross. Only God could uh, die on the cross for our sins as a man. And so Athanasius is the great defender of what we now refer to as the hypostatic union and the eternal deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And like most church arguments and most theological controversies, most people don't know diddly about what's really going on. And so you have about... uh, uh, 94% of the people who go to a conference don't know anything. 3% are deceived, and they're on one, the wrong side, and maybe 3% know what's going on, and they're on the right side, but everybody else is clueless. They just want to go for all of the fellowship. It's still that way today. It doesn't change. Most people don't understand the intricacies of theological issues. Out of that, it became clear, finally, that Athanasius was right, and that there was no foundation for saying that Jesus was created or generated from God sometime before creation, that Jesus has to be eternal. And so we have the opening two paragraphs here of the Nicene Creed. The first paragraph relates to the uh, person of God the Father. I believe in one God, the unity of God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Now, that's a just a reiteration of what Scripture says. But what does that mean? Just because somebody comes along and says something doesn't mean anything. Those are just words. We have politicians who say all kinds of good things all the time, but it's just words, 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 words. It's meaningless. What do they mean by these things? So it de- the creed defines what begotten means. He's the uh, only begotten Son of God. First of all, he's begotten of the Father before all worlds. Okay, he's, then it's going to explain that even further. Begotten doesn't mean made. Okay, that's the key idea. Begotten has to do with the relationship between the first and second person of the Trinity. So that the Lord Jesus Christ is God of God or God from God. You can't say he's fully God more clearly than that, but in case you don't get it, it's then light of light. What are we talking about when we talk about the glory, the effulgence, the uh, flashing forth of the character of God here in verse 3, the brightness of his glory? This is light from light. That's where that's the basis for saying that. This is one of the basis for saying that. Very God of very God or true God of true God would make more sense in a modern uh, modern terminology. The older English translation very is, doesn't communicate quite the same thing today. True God of true God. In other words, he's full undiminished deity. He's begotten but not made. That's the definition of begotten. Begotten, it just describes an eternal relationship it doesn't mean that he's made. It's not he wasn't given birth to. 
Okay, begotten doesn't mean to be born. Uh, he's uh, being of one substance with the Father. In other words, he has one essence, identical essence with the Father, by whom, notice, here's Jesus now, by whom all things were made. What did he just say about God the Father in the first, he's maker of heaven and earth. Jesus is now the one by whom all things are made. Now, later on, Athanasius, in one of his uh, encyclical letters to the bishops of Egypt and Libya, says some other things that are significant. He says, who does not see that the brightness cannot be separated from the light? See, he's talking about this this effulgence or this uh, brightness of his glory. And he's saying you can't separate the brightness from the light source itself. These are interconnected. One demands the other. He says, um, who does not see that the brightness cannot be separated from the light, but that it is by nature proper to it and coexistent with it? So if Jesus is the revelation of the Father... He is proper to the Father, connected to the Father, and coexistent with the Father. You can't separate the expression from the original. That's that's his argument there. He goes on to say, just look at the lines where I have underlined, for where there is light, there is radiance. You can't separate the radiance from the light source. For where, where there is light, there is radiance, and where there is radiance, there is also light. And thus we cannot have a light without radiance, nor radiance without light, because both the light is in the radiance and the radiance is in the light. Now, I want you to memorize that before you go home, and I want you to think about that, because that is some really heavy stuff right there. That is profound profound material to reflect upon that interrelationship between the, uh, the light and the radiance and the Father and the Son. That is extremely well said. You just don't find anybody today thinking or writing as profoundly as those early church fathers were. They're coming. This is in this is in 325. It was in 317 that Constantine uh, set forth the Edict of Tolerance, which meant that Christianity was now legal. So most of the bishops that were there had suffered and had known other bishops who had suffered martyrdom uh, for their faith in their lifetime. They're only 10 years away from Christianity being illegal. And listen to how profound and complex their thoughts are on theology. They are thinking deeply because if we're going to give our life for this, we better make sure it's true. We better make sure we really understand this because... You know, on a, as one person once said, on a good day, I'm going to die for the book of Romans, but on, but I want to make sure that, that I'm not dying for something that's not really the word of God. So they really thought these issues through at a profound level because they were in the furnace uh, of persecution for years over what they, what they believed. Now, what we're talking about here in terms of the glory is the, what is usually referred to in, in modern English and modern theology as the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory. So let's just have a couple of points on understanding this term, Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory usually refers to the uh, luminescent aspect of the glory of God in the tabernacle or the temple in the Old Testament. So first of all, the commonly used term is Shekinah glory, which we must break down into two the two terms, the two words, Shekinah, or Shekinah, and glory. Uh, Shekinah and glory. Shekinah comes from the Hebrew word Shekan, which means to dwell, the verb. Shekinah is really a Hebrew, I mean a rabbinic term that's developed after the Old Testament was written. It's, you don't find uh, Shekinah in the Hebrew Old Testament. But you do find its root verb, shekan, meaning to dwell. Glory is from the uh, Hebrew word kavod, which means something that is heavy, something that is weighty, something that has uh, seriousness to it, something that is extremely uh, sobering, something that is uh, heavy and weighty. And so Shekinah has to do with the dwelling presence of God, and the glory is something in addition to that. 
indicating something that is serious or weighty that's that's present there. The priests in the Old Testament designated the tent of the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum part, as the tent of meeting the Mishkan. Here, the, remember Hebrew doesn't have um, doesn't use vowels in their writing, so you can hear the sh, sh is one letter in Hebrew, the K is a second letter, the N is the third letter. Those are the three consonants. Shekna, sh, K, and N. That's that's your root word, shekan. Those are you drop out the vowels. Those are your three consonants. They have one consonant for a sh sound and another consonant for an s sound. In fact, they have two different consonants for an a sibilant S sound. So Mishkan, is a, they stick an M in the front of the word, making it a noun, so that's the same root. It's the tent of dwelling, and so that's the, that's the idea there. The term Shekan then came to be used for Yahweh's presence or dwelling upon the earth, Exodus 25, 21-22, Leviticus 26, 11, and 12. So the the Shekan, the dwelling presence, is in the Mishkan, which is the tabernacle. So it's also related to the phrase house of God, which is a second term that's used for the tabernacle, the present and dwelling presence of God. Now that's all related to understand mostly understanding Shekinah, Shekinah. Uh, second point, glory was a common biblical word used to describe the theophany that is the manifestation of God's presence upon the earth in the Old Testament, Exodus 16.10, Leviticus 9.23, and Numbers 14.10. Those are just a few of the examples uh, where, that's, where that's described. Uh, passages that we have like Exodus 16.10, it came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel, that they look toward the wilderness and behold the glory of the Lord, the glory of Yahweh appeared in the cloud. So they're seeing the, this physical manifestation of his presence on the earth. In uh, Numbers 14.10 we read, but all the congregation said uh, to stone them with stones, then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of, uh, of Israel. The glory of the Lord is his visible presence uh, in the tabernacle. And here, and again, we have it in Leviticus 9.23. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of Yahweh appeared to all the people. So it's this, this brilliant light that is a manifestation of an internal reality within the uh, Mishkan itself. Third point we see is that God's glory was associated with a pillar of cloud in the daytime, and the fire at night. And this pillar is manifested in the Exodus on Mount Sinai. That's the, uh, where they see that manifested as God is come, is giving them the law or going to give them the law. It's manifested the dedication of the tabernacle where it rested between the cherubim on the cover of the ark. And then you also see the, the Shekinah, uh, the glory presence entered Solomon's temple. It also left later on in Ezekiel's vision goes out the gate, goes out the uh, front of the temple, goes across the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, and ascends to heaven uh, before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 586. And then when Jesus leaves, he takes the same route and then ascends to heaven from the Mount of Olives. And so there's something significant about that. Uh, the fourth point, the Shekinah glory emphasizes this unique presence of God among his covenant people, Israel. It's his visible presence to confirm his blessing and to provide guidance. So he is uh, limiting himself in such way. The omnipresent God is limiting himself spatially and temporally, but he's still eternal and infinite. I don't know how that works. Neither do you. And you won't. Don't try. Fifth point, the Shekinah was not the shining or the glorying in the cloud, but it's the cause of it. It's not that that brilliant light. It's the cause of the brilliant light. That's the dwelling of God. And then the sixth point, the Shekinah represented the positional place of blessing the Jew had under the Abrahamic covenant, that God blessed them unconditionally because of that covenant with Abraham, and it wasn't due to their obedience or disobedience. 
This same glory is manifested by Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark 9.3. His garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. I don't care if you use white, bright, or Clorox. You can't get that white. That's the, so that's the only time his, that brilliance is seen during the time of his, the incarnation. And then in Revelation 21-23, we read that in the future, this is what will illuminate the earth. Uh, The city had no need of the sun. This is the new Jerusalem. The city has no need of the sun or the moon, so there will not be a sun or moon created or present in the new heavens and the new earth. The city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is the light. So when Jesus says things like, I am the light of the world, this ties into this whole doctrine of the brilliance of his essence. So he is the uh, brightness or the effulgence or the expression of his glory, of the essence of God. And then we read he's the express image. This is the word character, which is where we get our word character. It would be pronounced character. Uh, it is the, an exact or exact representation or identical essence of his person. It doesn't get any more clear than that in terms of making a statement on the deity of, of, of Christ. So this is the expression of Christ, three verses from the New Testament to look at. How do we know Jesus is God? John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. Old Testament passages... Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, Micah 5. Six passages that you should have handy and be able to explain. Memorize those verses. Isaiah 7, 14, Isaiah 9, 6, Micah 5, 2 are going to come up in about three or four months when we have Christmas. And you can memorize those verses now and you can uh, recite those when you're talking to your friends and family around the Christmas table. You'll be all prepared to share the gospel. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we can uh, examine your word and that we have clarity through the way you communicated to us. We can come to understand our Lord and who he is, that, that he is the exact representation of the Father, and that uh, by looking at Jesus and studying him, we can learn who you are. And Father, we pray that you might challenge us to push on to an even greater understanding of Scripture, to learn, to memorize to make the doctrines that we're studying part of our soul in a way that that even if we don't have our Bible, even if we don't have our notebooks, it's part of us. That's the only doctrine we really know is what's in our soul. And we pray that you would challenge us with these things in Christ's name. Amen.